It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Good morning. It is Friday 10th of March on The Michael Reed Show this morning. We have the very latest update on weather and road conditions around the country. A reminder for people to keep an eye out on the elderly during the cold snap. And what do national school teachers think of the new school curriculum? This a whole lot more between now and 11 o'clock. And if you want to uh, contact the show, you can do that by email. It's michael at lmfm.ie or you can text or WhatsApp the programme on 086-1800-658. I've no doubt that many of you are waking up this morning wondering, is there a blanket of snow outside? Well, I can tell you on my drive up from Dublin to uh, Drogheda this morning, Dublin was appalling. Blizzards, snow lying everywhere. But as you got past the airport heading up on the um, motorway, Things picked up a lot, but what I will say is that road conditions are treacherous to the extent that, remember, we had a very cold night last night and there was a lot of lying moisture on the ground and that has now turned to ice. I know that if you go into any car parks or walking on footpaths, be very, very careful. Now, a number of, of weather warnings still remain in place throughout the country. Some regions will continue to witness snowfall, but it should brighten up by the afternoon. Just before I come in air, I spoke to uh, Alan O'Reilly from Carla Weather for from the foothills, believe it or not, of Lugnaquilla and asked him what conditions were like there. Well, it's very snowy here, but it's absolutely beautiful. Calm, blue skies above me. Apart from the cold, it's actually picture perfect. Now, it seems to be a story of two parts around the country. Some places are getting very badly hit. I know myself coming from Dublin this morning that Dublin was pretty bad, but as you got out the motorway past the airport, things weren't so bad. Is that what you, you are, you're seeing or is that what your charts are telling you, Alan? Yeah, it varies widely across the country, but there has been some heavy falls, especially on higher ground. Even in parts of Mead, I've had people sending me messages that there was some heavy falls on higher ground. So it does vary a lot around the country. Um, so if you're traveling, maybe just be careful. It's not always going to be like where you are. As you, as you move around, it's going to change. And especially with a risk of some icy conditions still with temperatures very cold this morning. Now, we're not out of the woods yet in that we still have another couple of hours left in relation to the orange warning. And I know it's in Dublin as well. And then more so nationally, we're still looking at a yellow weather warning. Yes, it's a yellow warning for the entire country up to around midday. Um, that's mainly for ice, really, now, because of low temperatures. Um, but it will be a nice day, some nice sunshine, but it's going to turn very cold again tonight. So we just need to be careful because you will get some thaw during the day and then you will get a freeze at night time. 
So it is going to be uh, it's another tricky night, unfortunately, and especially early morning as well. But there is a little bit of good news on the horizon, albeit the temperatures will rise, but rain is on the way, am I right on that? Yes, rain will arrive from the southwest early in the morning and track up across the country, uh, reaching the kind of east, northeast around probably after midday. Um, It will bring milder air, but it will also bring some heavy rain. But that rain will clear off later in the evening uh, from many parts, but it will turn much milder. But it will be slow, so it will still be frosty in the morning. It'll only be really through the afternoon that we see the temperatures rising, and the temperatures will rise even further then for Sunday, with uh, temperatures getting well up, but unfortunately more rain moving in as well. Alan O'Reilly speaking to me just before we came on air with the very latest on the weather conditions around the country and for the region as well. Uh, We'll be giving you an update on road conditions uh, for this particular area and indeed for most parts of the country when we're joined by the uh, Road Safety Authority a little bit later on the programme. Let's stay with the bad weather and its implications, particularly for the elderly alone, is reminding people that older people are particularly vulnerable to harm during the cold weather. It has instigated its own cold weather response for older people and uh, that uh, allows them to, I suppose, weather out Excuse me, the poor weather which is going on. It's asking the general public to be mindful of older people that they may need some support. We're joined uh, this morning for the very latest on what you can do by Frank Dillon, Head of Communications and Fundraising with Alone. Uh, Frank, good morning to you. What does the cold weather response entail exactly? Good morning, Alan, and good morning to your listeners. Um, what, what that was involves is what we check in with a lot the older people that we work with, especially in the areas that are affected. As Alan just said, it's 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 different parts for across the country. So we're keeping an eye on the weather locally because we'd have staff in ninety seven areas around the country. So they're they're checking in with the older people in those areas. You know, it it's a short spell this, hopefully. And um, but at the same time it could be an important day for somebody. It could be a day they have a medical appointment. It could be a day that they do their shopping. So, you know, it's important just to check in and see if, if anyone needs a bit of extra support. Now, thankfully, uh, the cold snap's not going to be uh, too long. It's short-lived. Um, but nonetheless, we should make it our business to check in on people, even though things will change in the next 24 hours or so. I think so, yeah. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's as Alan said, it's going to thaw during the day, but then freeze again. And it's, it's just tripping hazards. It's slipping. If you could solve someone's path, if you could, you know, just clear it. For them, maybe check in, see if they need anything picked up from the shops because they can't get down themselves. Just that bit of support, even just to say hi, goes a long way. Can I just ask you, um, over the past 12 months or so, when we've been living through a cost of living crisis and the difficulties which uh, that entails, nonetheless, there have been significant supports for the government, for those marginalised people and indeed for people who are a little bit older in the community. Did you find things to be difficult from the perspective to the older uh, generation during the past 12 months or so? Yeah, absolutely, Alan. Yeah, for the first time in a long history, we saw that financial and legal issues became bigger than loneliness, which is, is it just shows you the, the impact of the cost of living increases. And we've been working with a lot of older people to support them and get them through whether it's it's usually a lot of it's based around energy bills and, and, and the rising cost of fuel and heating homes because I suppose heat is a heat is a health issue for older people. It's not it's not just a comfort issue, you know, and it's very important that they keep their homes warm and we've been able to work with an awful lot of them to help them support them to do that. And presumably it's uh, an inherent fear amongst 
the elderly population more than anything else that they will be cut off if they don't pay the bill. Uh, I suppose it's in their DNA that the minute a bill lands that they have to pay it and if they can't pay it, it creates a problem for uh, you know from an anxiety uh, perspective as well. well. I think they're a very proud generation. You know, I don't think any, anybody likes going into arrears and, and having that. So I think... and and. Lord knows they've lived through an awful lot of other people they've been through in their first recession, their first cost of living increase. But they know how to, you know, make ends meet. But this has been severely bad because the the effect around energy costs. And it's just, we're saying, just get in touch with us. We can talk through the options. And they've expanded the fuel allowance criteria. People might qualify for that where they before they wouldn't have. And there are supports there. Frank, what was your own um, view on the government's response to the cost of living crisis, particularly from the perspective of the people that you represent? Well, look, we welcome all the support that was given, and um, whether it was the energy payments or the, or the extra payments to the pension entitlement, but it's long been an ask of a loan that the pension be benchmarked, as is written into the programme for government. And if, if the pension was benchmarked coming into this cost of living increase, it wouldn't have caused as much hardship to people who are entitled to a pension at the end of a working life. It's, it's not a not a welfare payment, it's an entitlement um, that people are, are entitled to. And they, the government itself made the commitment to benchmark the pension. And we're just asking them now to, to commit to it. And it was meant to start in 2021. And we're hoping it'll start in the, the budget at the end of this year. Is Ireland a good country to be an older citizen? That's a very broad question, but I think on the whole... And yes, on general, when you take into yeah, consideration the needs and requirements, are we doing a pretty okay job? We're doing a pretty okay job as a society, but there's a lot more could be done as a government and structurally, because there's a there's an increasing amount of people that are going to fall into... We're looking at a million people over 65 mm. in less than 10 years now, and that requires the proper planning in the health system, the proper planning in housing, the proper planning in financial. And it's always pitched as a, as a sort of a, a young versus old, always heaping more pressure on the young, but we don't believe it is. With the right amount of planning, it's like any any crisis that you can foretell, you can plan for it and you can alleviate it. And uh, so there's a, lot, there's a lot of work needs to be done in the provision of correct housing, health, and the financial situation around the pension. And just on the pension, are you fearful that we could see a situation, given the fact that we're coming to a point where there will be so many more people who will require support because they'll slip into that bracket of retirement, of being um, uh, considered to be elderly in society, that the pension age, we could see that being pushed out further? Yeah, which seems to be a very clumsy method of dealing with it when there, there are other options and there's other ways of financing this. And we're talking about a very small contribution from GDP if it was planned right and, and if, you know, if the government sort of started now putting in place the types of measures that would support those who need it and at the same time, you know, offer a fair society for everybody living in it that's paying taxes. And are you of the view that they are taking it seriously? Because we know that the, this particular issue has been flagged significantly over a protracted period, but uh, I certainly don't get the sense that we are moving to put structures in place to deal with it. No, and that, that, that's our call. Like It's in the programme for government to benchmark the pension, but we're, we're, 
we're calling on the government now to, to make it happen, you know, because it, it's there. They've made the commitments, they wrote it in, and now it's just a question of, of, of putting the putting the mechanics in place for it to happen. Okay, Frank Till, Head of Communications and Fundraising with the Loan. Thanks for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the cost of providing temporary accommodation for Drada Educate Together School has risen to more than 11 million euro while the school continues its long wait for a permanent home. Loud Labour TD Jed Nash pushed the Minister for Education to set out a timeline for the delivery of a permanent home for the school but was disappointed with the response. And Labour's Deputy Nash joins us this morning for more on this story. Um, Deputy, good morning. First of all, before morning. we get into this, can you give me an idea of this 11 million what period of time does it span well the last time I, I asked the question of the minister uh, in regard to the running costs of the development of the Drogba Educate Together school on the Mill Road in Mornington uh, was last uh, February 12 months and the indications from the minister then uh, were that the running cost in terms of the modular um, buildings that were provided on the site uh, the site works and all related matters pertaining to the development of the temporary accommodation of the school was at about €5 million. Euros. And now in the space of just over a, a year, uh, that has rocketed now to €11.7 million. Euros, an extraordinary sum of money in anyone's language, Alan. Okay, okay. Uh, Deputy, just bring me back again. We're talking from, what, 2019 that we have amassed that bill of nearly €12 million. Is that correct? That, that's right. Well, that, that's my, my sense of it. Um, remember to give a little pot of history of the journey uh, that this really incredible school has taken over the last few years. It was established at first on a site in Laytown back in 2019, uh, and the site that uh, the school in Lay, uh, was on in Laytown uh, was provided by the uh, Ledmead Education Training Board on a temporary basis. Then, I think it was in 2020 when the school went to the current site uh, on the Mill Road in Mornington. That's going to be the site that the permanent school building is going to be developed on uh, over the next uh, couple of years. That's another issue that I have with the Minister's response. On about three separate occasions now, uh, over the last couple of years, the Minister has given us a timeline for the submission of a planning application for the permanent building, the permanent building that the school and the school population more generally really, really needs. Uh, and now we're being told that it's going to be the end of Q2 2023. In other words, at some point between um, April and June, when the full planning uh, permission for a planning application, I should say, will be submitted to the County Council. That means then, according to the Minister's reply, that it could take, for example, another considerable period of time before tender documents are organised, and then potentially a timeline of 82 weeks, the Minister has said, uh, uh, after that, uh, until we see the... Um, so we could, we could be looking at 2020, 2025 as a realistic possibility, and in that time we see that 11 million going to post 15 million. That's right, and the point that I was say, I was making uh, all along uh, in in the work that I do with the school, incredible school, great staff, great principal, great school community, brilliant parents council. The point to be making all along is that it's just an inefficient use of public money. Uh, what should have happened from the outset? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, deputy, for cutting across you, but I mean inefficient. It is a scandalous waste of taxpayers' money that will this will cost in the region of 15 million euro coming out of our pockets to fund this when a school could have been built for less than that in the time period that we have been paying 
rent, as it were, for it? Well, I, th- I, th- I think you put, 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 your, put your finger on it. Uh, and there is outrage uh, at this. Everybody knows that the school needs accommodation and the accommodation that's been provided is of a very good standard and nobody is denying that. But the reality is that you could have built a school and probably half of another school, quite frankly, uh, based on the cost that um, would pertain for, the constru- for, for, for school development. At the time, the school was actually looking at developing temporary accommodation. Or he'd be arguing time and again over the last two to three years that what should have happened is that in parallel with the development of the temporary school buildings to, to, to provide the accommodation for uh, the students at the Mill Road site, what should have been done by the Department of Education's building unit is for the permanent uh, uh, school building planning permission process to run in parallel. That would have made much more sense, would have been much more cost effective. I remember back in 2011 uh, when uh, the country had very little money, when uh, you know, nobody would lend money to us. We were in a Troika programme with the EU, ECB uh, and, and the IMF, when actually Rory Quinn, the then Minister for uh, Education, who himself was a professionally trained architect, understood that the limited resources that we had were better used to a, a better target actually building permanent schools because this country during the so-called Celtic Tiger years was wasting money hand over fist on buildings that were ultimately going to be taken well, down and transported somewhere else. Can I ask you, has the Minister taken any form of responsibility around this scandal? And that's what it is. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't accept that she has. I mean, this is not the only school in this situation. And we've seen again this week to complicate matters even further. And when I talk about the 82-week timeline that the Minister provided to me in response to my dog questions about you know, how long it may take once planning permission is secured and so on and tender documents are sent out, um, you will recall and you would have seen it and the listeners would have seen it in the media this week, 58 schools uh, that were due to be built over the next couple of years have been uh, long-fingered now because of a financial review being undertaken by the Department of Education and the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. I mean, €860 million Euros was allocated to the Department of Education this year for capital expenditure and we know that construction costs are a big issue and we know that there are strains in that regard but you know, this isn't good enough. Um, okay, well... Ineffective and inefficient use of money. Also, utterly Right. Let's talk about then. Let's talk about the students and parents. And we're not for a moment suggesting that the accommodation or uh, tuition that they're getting where they are at the moment is anything but the very best. However, we all want to see a permanent solution. But can they or can you take any comfort out of what the minister was telling you in your written question to this issue? Or are we going to have this conversation again in two years' time? Yeah, I, 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 I don't want to be alarmist, but uh, I fear whatever with two years' time, I think we may be having the conversation again in six months' time, uh, and another year will, will be lost. You know, we, we look at the academic year from, as being from you know, September to June, uh, and, um, you know, if planning permission is, is, is submitted to Mead County Council, uh, within the Minister's timeline, the most recent timeline she gave me, we, we will all uh, really welcome that. But, you know, experience in terms of, of this particular project has taught us to be very, very sceptical and dubious about any commitments made by the Minister or the Department of Education uh, more generally. We've been uh, here before, uh, we've been told on several occasions that the Planning Commission would be submitted uh, only for uh, those hopes to be dashed uh, at the 11th hour. There's a lot of moving parts and too many moving parts in relation to uh, this whole project. You know, the East Mead area in South Road is one of the fastest growing areas of the country. I mean, the South Road area uh, in County Mead that the schools serves 
has grown by 40% population-wise um, between 2016 and uh, when the last census was taken uh, just last year. Extraordinary development. The latest Beddystown area has grown by 10%, one of the fastest growing areas in the country. We need permanent school buildings. This is a fantastic school. I've been close to this school since its inception uh, and the principal is fantastic. School teachers are fantastic. The entire school community, parent and guardian, parents and guardian council uh, work very closely with okay. them. Really victims of their own success. It's always oversubscribed, uh, as locals will know. It's a popular school. People want to send their children to it. Um, and people really, you know, anybody uh, involved with the school. Okay, Deputy. Let, community really needs a permanent building and they need right. to be fast-tracked. Let's talk then about the Minister's response in relation to siting planning, in relation to tendering. There is a degree of a timeline there around those particular procedures, is there not? There is, yeah, and we, you know, we'll we obviously hold the minister to account uh, on that. But as I said uh, earlier on uh, in, our, in our exchange, uh, the experience of the community over the last couple of years, uh, you know, has taught us to be very sceptical and to, you know, be, be cautious in terms of any commitments that would be made by the Department of Education in relation to the timeline uh, on this school. And, you know, I, I do fear as well that whatever about the timeline, you know, the written commitment given by the Minister in terms of planning permission and so on, even when we get to the point where uh, planning permission might might be secured, um, we could be looking down at, at further delays because of what emerged uh, late last week okay. about the Minister's review of the 58 construction projects currently underway across the country. And just to crystallise this whole argument, by the time this school is finished, it will have probably cost more than double what it would have cost us if we were able to turn the sod three, four, five years ago. That's right, and I think that's 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 the scandal, and that I think responsibility lies at the feet of the Minister of Education. We have an utterly dysfunctional system in terms of school building in this country. There are far too many layers. There's far too little accountability uh, along the way. It's often very difficult to get clear answers to very straightforward questions. And I think you know, over the years, communities and and and. Your parents, teachers, principals, boards of management have been let down by the way we do that. It's done much in a much clearer way in other countries, a much clearer process, too many layers, too, too inefficient, and ultimately then it costs too much money for the taxpayer. There you go. That was uh, Deputy Jed Nash speaking to me a little bit earlier in relation to funding for that school taking place. Now, it's just coming up to 20 to 11, 20 to 10, shall I say. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. 0861800658 if you want to contact us. Brian Farrell is Communications Manager with the Road Safety Authority and joins us. Morning, Brian. How are you this morning? Good um, morning, Alan. Thanks for taking our call. How difficult are conditions out there this morning? Uh, the National Emergency Coordination Committee highlighted the fact that the morning commute was going to be quite challenging with very hazardous conditions out there on the road. So uh, I suppose it, it's important for us to just repeat the advice and the messages uh, that have been pushed out over the last number of days. And that is for please for people to check the local weather and traffic situations and road conditions in your area uh, before you set out on a journey. Um, look, if the conditions are very bad, maybe consider uh, leaving it to later when, when, when a thaw sets in um, and uh, you know not just I suppose just be aware of the fact again that 
the roads that are most likely to be untreated are the local back roads, the regional roads, the local roads, those country roads, which um, are probably the most treacherous and the most hazardous out there. Um, but even on those gritted roads, it's important for you to, to take it gingerly. Slow down. Um, if you ha- are dealing with snow and ice conditions, uh, use a high gear when normal driving and use a um, a low gear when going downhill. And, and that what that does is you're, you're using the engine as a break um, uh, and of course uh, if, if you do get into a, ski, a skid the most important thing for you to do is to remove the cause and that's, your, that's the speed at which you're travelling so, so take your foot off the accelerator and what you'll find is that there's lots of um, uh, um, safety assist features on your vehicle like electronic stability control, traction control um, anti-lock braking systems that kick in to help you uh, in the event of a skid or loss of traction so, so don't be you know, surprise when they do kick in. A lot of people, uh, t- you know, I've heard people taking their cars to mechanics uh, because they felt the brake was acting very strange when they got into a skid. And of course, that's that's the ABS kicking in. Yes, uh, so, of course. So get understand them, take out the manual, understand how they And, how and that's they work. such a, an important point, Brian, because the majority of cars these days have those aids for them in uh, that can be used in conditions like this. And sometimes it's just simply the, the, the flicking of a button. So get the manual will have read it. Yeah, and make sure your traction control is turned on yeah. because that's something that can be activated and deactivated. You know, but these things, you know, like if you if you lose traction on one of the wheels, like the traction control can effectively put the, the, the wheel in, uh, you know, in neutral. So what it does there, it stops the wheel from trying to grip and just making the situation worse. But electronic, electronic stability control will help you in situations of understeer and oversteer. So oversteer is when you're basically the back of the car fishtails mm-hmm. and uh, understeer is when you, you're, you're losing your traction on the front of the vehicle and that helps, you know, electronic stability control helps the car regain traction and, and, and direction which is the key thing but look, we don't want people to be using them as a, a you know, a, a, as a false sense of security. It's important that we don't drive, uh, you know, to the, you know, pushing it to the envelope thinking that these things will kick in. And well here's the problem Brian yeah. and I noticed it this morning that a lot of motorists don't understand that conditions can change within the space of a thousand metres less. They could be, as the man says, putting the foot down, going along, thinking everything is great, and all of a sudden the conditions change so, so quickly. Yeah, and don't forget as well that we're dealing with black ice out there on the roads as well. The roads may look clear, um, but it's it's still challenging conditions out, which is why we really have to expect the unexpected. And you, as you say, it's a really important piece of advice, Alan. And that is understand that the conditions are very changeable. What we'll probably find now is there'll be a bit of a melt and a thaw today. Uh, you've got to understand that if there's any pedestrians or cyclists, they may have to, uh, if there's no footpath, move out a bit from the edge of the road because there'll be slush and accumulations of snow and melting ice, uh, melting snow as well. And you have to pass wide and slow down when overtaking them. Um, be conscious as well that it'll kick up a lot of spray if you're travelling behind vehicles, so make sure your windows have uh, are topped up with washer fluid and uh, and, and of course um, slow down. That That's the most important message because um, even in thawing snow and ice, uh, you know, there's, there's a risk of, 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 of um, wet roads, maybe accumulation of, of water and ponding. And there's in slush areas. there on the road as well, which is as yeah. equally dangerous. Yeah, and, and there's a danger there, of course, of, of aquaplaning. But Alan, I think the real concern that was expressed by the uh, by the um, 
uh, National Coordination Committee, uh, Emergency Coordination Committee, is that we're set to see temperatures drop again now tonight. And, and we're talking about potentially temperatures as low as minus five. And of course, if we have a bit of a thaw, uh, you know, it, you know that'll all freeze again. And it's going to make for very treacherous conditions now overnight. So we're not out of the woods yet. I think we're looking at a, a, an extensive thaw tomorrow and then uh, and then on Sunday. But uh, it really is important that we, we understand that we're not out of the woods yet. We may see it, you know, you may have a bit of a thaw today, but it is going to freeze again overnight. So we are looking at treacherous conditions overnight and certainly into t- into tomorrow morning. So please, everyone, just to, just to, just to take it easy on the roads. And uh, I think, as I said, Check local weather conditions and traffic conditions. Heed any advice that the local authorities and the Gardaí are putting out in relation to roads. And uh, yeah, just just, just okay. take it easy out there on the roads. Brian Farrell, Communications Manager with the Road Safety Authority. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Now, it's just coming up to 10 minutes to 10 this morning. If you want to give us a call on the programme, you can do that by text or WhatsApp 086 658 Or you can mail the programme, email michael at lmfm.ie. Now, let's move on. We were contacted by Aintu leader Pader Tobin, uh, TD uh, for Mid West and chair of the Save, Nash, Save Navin uh, hospital campaign. Um, Pader, good morning. Thanks for joining us. I understand there may have been an issue at the ED department at Navin on Wednesday. What can you tell us about that? Yes, Alan. I, I suppose oftentimes we only seem to talk about Navin Hospital when it's in immediate danger of having its A&E closed. And, all, you know, thankfully... Because of the massive campaign of the people of Mees, we've managed to, to hold off that day uh, for a while anyways. But, you know, it's important just for people to understand what's actually happening there on a day-to-day basis. Um, and on Wednesday night, the uh, A&E was absolutely jam-packed. And it was so full that uh, 39 patients had, uh, had gained access to the uh, A&E. They had been triaged. Um, but they were still all awaiting for somebody, some doctor or some, some uh, medical professional, to actually see them, uh, to, to consult with them, to engage with them, to, you know, to, to, work, to diagnose whatever was the difficulty. And that was just those who'd been triaged. On the other side of the door, the waiting room is, was hammered, it was full of patients yet to be triaged. Um, so the, the, the A&E in Navin, the one that they're looking to close, is under enormous pressure trying to deal with you know the the, the demands that's there yeah. in County Mead for it. Okay, well, can I can I put it to you though, Padre, that anom- anomalies like this happen in every hospital? Is that all it is? Well, it's 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 not an, an anomaly as such, and even though those figures are are extraordinarily high, uh, Navinani would be under pressure regularly. Would be would be full on you know weekends. Uh, would see it very very busy, and even on that particular night there was. There wasn't a bed available for any of those patients at all. So none of those patients. Now, normally, you you hear trolley counts, and you know they also count people on chairs uh, in that trolley count. But incredibly, there was no trolleys available for most of these people. And because the chairs had been removed uh, from the A and E that day, many of those patients were actually sitting on the floor in A and E on that day. And, and medics were being uh, called and contacted from other parts of the hospital to come in and try to deal with the pressure. So this is a health service that is, is bursting at the seams at the moment. And this is, is an A&E that's in, in fierce uh, uh, pressure. And we have the same similarly in Drogheda on a regular basis. And yet the, the, the completely detached senior management within the HSE 
still think it's a good idea to close. Okay, I want to talk to I want to talk to you about that, Pather, but just uh, to say that we've been in touch with the HSE to try and garner a response from them in relation to what you have raised with us here, and we've yet to hear back from them. I'd say it must be about a year ago, Pather, that you and I spoke about the closure of the hospital, and things were pretty much in a state of flux around what was happening uh, in terms of a response for the minister. Where are we, are we at with it today? Well, where we're at at the moment is the government has introduced what's called an, an ambulance bypass. So right now we have ambulances picking up people in County Mead and dropping them off in Drogheda. We know in some cases they are triaged in Drogheda and then they're brought back to Navin by ambulance to be treated. In, in, in a number of circumstances, I've heard that ambulances weren't available to do that. So they brought patients back by taxi to Navin. And where patients are brought by back taxi, usually a medical professional is put into the taxi with them which means that medical professional has to get a taxi back to Drogheda. So it's a mess. Incredibly uh, uh, laborious, inefficient manner to treat a, a patient and hospital staff. Um, and uh, my understanding is that the HSE are still actively communicating with groups such as Doctor on Call, which is obviously uh, NE Doc, uh, to see what extra staff do they need so that the closure of the A&E can proceed. So the, the, the HSE senior management are actively trying to put into place what they think is the necessary resources so that they can com, uh, continue with the closure. And it's, if, if you just contrast that mentality, that plan by the HSE, with the reality of the ground of you know, nearly 40 patients triaged and still waiting to see a, a doctor uh, in the hospital on a weekday night in this, in this county, you know, that it just does not make sense. And we're, I raised it with the Taoiseach yesterday uh, again to try to see, can we get the government to see a little bit of common sense, to see a little bit of, of logic here. And uh, we're going to keep pushing it until the government reverse their plans to close Navin and invest the necessary resources. Because a, a waiting list of 39 people within A&E tell you it needs more resources, not less. So what then will the implications be? Now, I know we've had the conversation before around um, uh, the Lord's Hospital, if that closes, and what sort of um, difficulties is the hospital, uh, Our Lady of Lords, un- uh, undergoing at the moment as a result of it? Well, f- first of all, so um, the Drada, Our Lady of Lords in Drada is under enormous pressure in terms of trying to deal with um, the level of, of patients that are coming in, in their direction. We saw before Christmas where five ambulances uh, had to wait outside of uh, Drogheda Hospital, Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda, um, for up to, uh, I think, five hours. Sorry, excuse me, 11 ambulances waited for up to five hours uh, to deposit their their patient. And that meant that those patients didn't get uh, triaged, they didn't get diagnosed, uh, they didn't get treated in, in, in time. And it also met, meant, because those ambulances were tied up for so long in that car park in Drada, that there were no ambulances available in Cavan, Monaghan, Louth and Meath uh, for the whole night uh, in, in that region. Now, we, we've seen just in the last um, couple of weeks, new figures come out in terms of ambulances not meeting um, their call-out times. So the majority of ambulances now are not meeting their call-out times uh, in terms of heart attack or stroke or, or serious illnesses. And what we've done now is we've put in a, a parliamentary question to the Minister for Health to find out on how many occasions uh, in each of the last five years has an ambulance arrived at a scene of an emergency 
where the patient has already deceased, where the patient has already died. Um, and also how many occasions has an ambulance got to a scene, picked up a patient, brought the patients to an A&E, but by the time they've reached the A&E, has the patient already died? Because we know that late arrival by an ambulance and long waits in A&Es leads to deaths of 1,300 people on average a year in this okay. country. We cannot allow it to continue. We have to get the government and the HSE to wake up to make sure that there's proper capacity in the services here okay. in this region. We've got to leave there. Pader, thanks so much for that. Pader Tobin, Intu Leader and TD uh, for me, the Western Chair of a Save Navin Hospital campaign. Michael Reed on LMFM. 086-1800-658. That's the text if you want. Text us this morning or WhatsApp the programme. Minister for Education, Norma Foley, announced the new primary school curriculum, the biggest change to primary school education in this country in a quarter of a century. The changes to the curriculum are set to be introduced by 2026, with the focus on students' education set to be made more flexible for teachers and students, with a greater emphasis on additional subjects and a move away from religion in the classroom. This is what can be expected in the new primary school curriculum. Well, joining us this morning is uh, Maureen Nikelokor, who is the Head of Education Research and Learning with the INTO, the National Teachers' Organisation. Maureen, good morning. Thanks for taking our call this morning. Um, good morning. I, I think broadly, I think most people and stakeholders involved in this have welcomed what has been announced by um, Minister Foley. What's your own position in relation to it? Well, we'd be very much welcoming the uh, launch of the framework yesterday. And I suppose just to put it in context, what the Minister launched yesterday was framework. It's kind of an introduction yeah. um, to the curriculum. The curriculum itself is currently in development. The five new subject areas are being developed by by development boards uh, which have experienced teachers and educational experts on them. And this is, I suppose, an introductory volume. It paves the way. It sets out the overarching principles of the curriculum. It sets out the key competencies of the curriculum. It informs us what's coming down the line. And it gives teachers and schools and communities and parents time to engage with what's coming before the actual subject specifications themselves start rolling out in schools, which we would hope would be in about 2025. Is it your view it's revolutionary or is it just tinkering around the edges? Um, I'm smiling as I say that. I suppose the um, it's a very integrated curriculum and those of us of a certain vintage, and I won't cast aspersions on your own age, um, <laughs> will remember being taught uh, under the 1972 curriculum. Before yeah, the which was an appalling, an appalling way to teach children. Rote learning, go read the books, and upsize that there was no... Yeah, and it was never meant to be that. It was meant to be a very integrated curriculum. So this curriculum sets out to be a very integrated framework. And we live our lives in a very integrated way. Um, And it's all about seeing the similarities. And what it's based on is the skills that children will need to solve real-world problems. Um, in uh, In 2019, the OECD said that children in primary schools today, 60 of them will work in jobs that don't even exist now. Mm-hmm. So what we are trying to do is we're trying to give those children skills which will provide them with the skills they need in the future and we're trying to provide continuity through the curriculum and it's actually a very exciting time in education because the early childhood framework ASHTER is based on skills. We will now have a primary curriculum based on skills development 
a very integrated curriculum which will feed into a revised junior search, a junior cycle, which is also very skills-based. So for the first time, I suppose, in the education sphere here in Ireland, we will have continuity through the different stages of okay. a child's school life. With the I think in- that's a very exciting yeah. part. With the introduction of any change and changes of the magnitude as outlined by the Minister comes with it challenges. Now, the Minister has had challenges in relation to the Leaving Cert when you consider what happened with Paper 1 and Paper 2 in English and Irish, the way she wanted to uh, break those up for Leaving Cert. This will create its challenges as well, won't it? It will indeed. And I suppose you are looking at um, a huge uh, job of work. We have almost 3,500 primary schools with tens of thousands of teachers and hundreds of thousands of pupils in them. So that that will be a big change to change the way teachers teach and to change the way teach the children will learn. And that will have to be resourced and financed. And the INTO is very adamant that a really comprehensive, well thought out programme of CPD for teachers, of retraining, of reskilling, of upskilling, of lots of support, uh, good face-to-face engagement with curriculum experts who will come into schools and engage with teachers and help them find their way through this new curriculum, this new framework. It has to be financed. This can't be done on a, on a shoestring. It has to be financed. It has to be resourced. It has to be supported on an ongoing basis as the curriculum is rolled out. We'll also need to look at how our, our young teachers are being trained in our colleges of education. So the teaching and lecturing staff in those colleges will have to become familiar with this. And new teachers, newly qualified teachers will have to enter the system in the next number of years prepared to teach this new curriculum and engage with this new framework. So this, and we'd also be calling, I think, for this to be prioritised. Um, this is the, is the biggest change. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In primary education since 1999, almost a quarter of a century, we must give it the respect and the time it deserves. Other initiatives will need to be sidelined or deferred. If this is to be done properly, it must be prioritised. Okay, well, I want to ask you, is it the view of the INTO that once it is up and running, that the workload will decrease for teachers or will it bring with it challenges 
in relation to spending extra time because of the changes which have been introduced in the curriculum uh, for teachers? Well, we would be hoping during the rollout that teachers will be given dedicated time during their working day, their working week, their working year to engage with the curriculum. And the integrated uh, nature of the curriculum is designed to decrease curriculum workload and, and workload for teachers. The 1999 curriculum was very subject-based. It was a very broad curriculum. Um, this integrated curriculum should decrease workload and it travels along with a document which was released almost two years ago now about preparation for teaching and learning, uh, which if the two are used together should increase the amount of paper, should dec- decrease, decrease mm-hmm. I meant to say, the amount of paperwork that teachers need to engage with. It really focuses on the teacher as a professional and as an agentic professional capable of making their own decisions and prioritising for their class, school communities prioritising for their school, taking in the unique context of each school. Okay, and I want, another important stakeholder in this, I mean, we've, we've talked about teachers, we've talked about students, but the parents, they too need to be brought in in this particular process because it, it is them who will have to have a very clear understanding in terms of the way things have changed because they will have to pick it up when students come uh, home from school because they'll still be getting homework, won't they? Well, that's that's a major question, I suppose, that we're probably not going to debate homework now. But oh, we'll, 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 we'll touch on it, but just let's... We'll touch let's on homework, <laughs> but go back to the parents and the informing parents. Um, this curriculum has been developed by the NCCA, the yeah. National Council of Curriculum and Assessment, and at one of their seminars last year, there was a huge emphasis on, on the fact that this needs to be communicated properly to all stakeholders, including parents, very much so. Parents were consulted um, in the development of this framework. They're being consulted in the development of the curriculum as we go along. And there is, I think, a need for a very comprehensive uh, communication uh, strategy and programme from all educational stakeholders that we are all develop, uh, delivering very clear, very consistent messages that we allay people's fears um, Change is always difficult for everybody. Um, it's hard to be sitting down with a child and saying, that's not how I learned it, or they did it differently in my day. Um, and that we have to embrace that change. But I think communication with parents through all the, the avenues that we have for communicating with parents, both at school level, nationally through the National Parents Council, and all the other ways we do communicate with parents, I think it's really, really important that parents know what's happening and are very aware of the changes going on for their children. Okay, Um, Uh, let's just... Well, I do, to the extent that, I mean, it is causing uh, considerable debate since um, uh, Uktaron Neheran touched on it some months ago. I think it may have been prior to Christmas and then Leo Varadkar was brought into the discussion, as were so many other stakeholders. But there has to be a case for saying that, you know, a certain amount of homework, focused homework, can't not be a bad thing for primary school uh, students. Well, I think one of the main benefits of homework for, for children and, um, and, and parents is that it is a method of communication between home and school. Um, it informs uh, parents what their children are doing in school. The international research on homework is is very conflicting. You will find as many, um, I suppose, researchers saying that homework is beneficial as you will find researchers saying that homework is not beneficial. But it is a very important communication tool. And I think that that value of it as a communication tool and as a... um, 
a two-way peace between home and school um, should be maintained. I do think, however, it can also be the greatest source of stress in many homes around the country um, of an evening or of a Sunday night. And is that because parents aren't sufficiently equipped to be able to deal with the questions coming from their children or is it a case that there's so much going on in the house that we have to try and allocate time to little Jimmy or Mary to try and help them with their homework or is it a combination of things? I I think it's a combination of things and I think there, I I think uh, the, the president's comments have sparked a national debate, which which is no harm, because I do think we need to focus on what we require homework to do. Um, and that can be different t- things at different times in, in a school's life and a child's life. And I do think there needs to be a lot of discussion about it. But I don't think there is any simple answer to it. And we're certainly got no, not going to answer it here in the next five minutes. No, we won't. But I think, I, I mean, I'm just, as they say, a hurler on the ditch and looking at this from the perspective of what you will require when you progress through education as you get to secondary and then going to college or university. There is a huge degree of extra work that has to be undertaken by the student in college, in university, putting together, whether it be papers uh, or whatever. And that requires a huge degree of time spent outside of the learning environment to do that. And when you start that at a young age, it sets it sets the precedent, as it were, for you to be able to understand that, well, this is something I've always done. I'm ready to do it and I'm happy to do it, as opposed to being just landed with it when you're in your late teens and it's a complete nightmare for you to try and get your head around. And I, and I do think if we look at what are the key competencies in this curriculum framework, there are seven key competencies and they are, a lot of them are about learning to learn and I think if we can build up those um, competencies in children at a very young age, one of them is being an active learner and being an active learner is all about inquiry and research and being able to work independently being a communicator and using language and I know from my own time in college and my son's time in college that's an, inc- an incredibly uh, important skill to have uh, we require uh, a junior cycle now children need to, need to be able to present and make presentations they'll, they'll go on to colleges and do that and I think if we look at the key competencies and wh- how they follow through the child's, child's life I think if the homework can be designed around building those companies and build it, building the skills you need to, to go into a library in a college, if they'll exist by the time the children get to college at this stage, to go online to research, to be able to find uh, research that is relevant. They're the skills we'd be trying to promote with homework rather than giving somebody 20 mm. of the same sons to reinforce sure. the concept. We'll be looking at it differently because we will be teaching and learning differently. Now, I know one of the elements that there's going to be uh, quite a, a strong emphasis on will be languages, and I know that some schools already in the primary sector touch on languages um, mm-hmm. uh, during the course of their academic year. But we're coming to the table pretty late on this. We should have been doing this a long, long time ago introducing languages uh, in in the primary sector shouldn't we well i do think that we um we look very much on language learning here as learning irish and learning english we're actually very prepared for this teachers in primary schools in ireland teach two languages every day whether those languages are irish and english or english and french or irish and french or irish and german they're still teaching two languages every day and what we would be looking at in the new curriculum is the development of language acquisition skills in the senior end of primary and children will be introduced to a modern foreign language and there is currently a very successful language sampler project 
running, I think, in about 600 schools this year, um, which has been rolled out by PPLI, Post-Primary Language Initiative Ireland, uh, very, very successfully. And they've gathered a lot of data from the teachers and the pupils and the parents in those schools of where they are engaging with the language centre. And the, the results are very, very promising and have been very successful. So I do think that as language teachers, our teachers already have skills as language teachers. Um, we're not just talking about what we're looking at in the new curriculum here is language, the area of language, mm-hmm. not specifically in the foreign language. languages. Yeah. And you are looking at giving children the skills to acquire language. And they will choose those languages later on. They will be given exposure to certain languages in the primary school, but they may choose different languages later on based on the underlying competencies they have acquired as primary learners. Maureen, I I just want to uh, touch on one final issue, and that is religious knowledge or religious instruction, as it's known. Um, That is to be diluted somewhat. That, well, a lot of people would be of the view it's a positive thing, that it should be taken out of the schools and be dealt with in the churches. Well, I think that, as you say, this is an ongoing debate, Alan, and we already have schools of different patrons who are trying very successful models of having a patron's programme, not having religious instruction within the school day. And this will be something for schools of different denominations and faiths and ethos to discuss. But there will be an ethics programme um, in the new curriculum. Um, it, there will be an awareness of other religions, um, and the, the the place of doctrinal instruction will have to be discussed and looked at by individual schools and individual patrons and seen how this is fitted in. And we have already seen um, uh, more of a move to much uh, greater parental involvement, much greater parish involvement, and that is something that can only be welcomed. And finally, do you think that the new curriculum is structured to meet the changing needs and demands of society and the world uh, as we have seen it? I think if you look at the competencies that we're talking about, being an active citizen, being creative, being a digital learner, being mathematical, being a communicator, well-being is very much at the centre of this curriculum, as is being an active learner. And I think those skills can only prepare us for the future. They're the skills we need today. And I think they are skills that can be easily adapted as we move forward. I think they will make us much more flexible learners, much more uh, flexible when engaging with new situations. Um, When the 99 curriculum was, um, I suppose, introduced all those years ago, um, did any of us think we would be holding um, very powerful, as Arlene Foster suggested at the launch, very powerful personal computers in our hands, um, using the phones and cameras and the reference to life changes daily, as you know. And I suppose this curriculum is hoping to lay the foundations for very flexible, competent learners who will be able to engage with their environment in an ongoing basis. Okay, we leave it there, Maureen Akila Kaur, who is Head of Education, Research and Learning with the INTO. Thank you for joining us. Michael Reed on LMFM. More than 200 Unite members at the Cargo Tech, formerly Moffat Engineering Facility in Dundalk, are on strike today in a dispute surrounding what the union has termed a bogus two-process. A ballot of Unite members last month returned an overwhelming 93% vote in favour of the industrial action and a further day of strike action is scheduled for the 16th of March if the dispute is not resolved in the meantime. Tom Fitzgerald is Regional Coordinating Officer with Unite Trade Union and joins us this morning. Uh, Tom, what do they do at Cargo Tech? Good morning, Alan, to you and your listeners. Uh, they're a manufacturing facility that they, they make forklifts effectively. They're part of an international uh, company. 
Okay, and they're taking this action around what you term a bogus toop process. What is that? Well, there's legislation there for circumstances where um, uh, an employer company decides to hive off a certain section of the business and there's very uh, clear guidelines around that how, how that would be done. Um, in these circumstances, we don't think that was done correctly. Um, the employer is saying um, that it was and also we have a dispute. In terms of trying to deal with that, uh, we've tried to deal with that directly through engagement with, them, with themselves. They've asked us to go off and deal with through kind of complex legal processes, which is not appropriate. Uh, in our mind, we've said there's a very clear uh, collective bargaining process. You deal with us directly. If we can't resolve that, we utilise the state machine, the WRC and the Labour Court, and see where that gets us. They themselves refused to go to the Labour Court uh, uh, for the matter to be heard. That gave rise to the um, disputes procedure has been exhausted. We balanced the members from Dutch Action and now we're, we're out on the pickets. Um, we said to them all the way along, we're prepared to engage directly um, and we're prepared to engage with any other tour party. Um, but we, they weren't having that. They wanted you to go through what you have described as the complex legal framework that they outlined. Is, outlined, is that correct? It is, exactly. They want 40 or so individual workers take the individual cases and the greatest respect to that process that could take a year down the road uh, uh, where we're saying to listen, engage yourselves in normal industrial relations practice way and find solutions to the problem. Um, and actually, we believe that we can find solutions to the problem that doesn't do any harm to the company because what they're proposing actually um, centres on um, uh, a different way of doing certain areas of work particularly in the paint shop, we're not opposed to that fundamentally. But what we are opposed to is that it just happens unilaterally. There's no conversation with our members um, and there may be long-term implications for for, 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 for all our members. At the heart of this, Alan, is this, is that had they taken a respectful approach, they would have got the change you were looking for. We wouldn't have had a problem. And we're saying to now, uh, take a step back, engage in us, have that respectful approach and we'll resolve matters. It's, this is very doable if there's uh, if there's industrial license will to resolve matters. It's de- definitely there on, on our side. The question remains if it's there on their side. Okay, well why are they so reluctant to sit down with you and discuss this in an open manner to try and resolve it? Have they given you the rationale? No, what they're saying is they're constrained and bound by what the law says. And we're saying, we're saying we don't, no, nobody wants to... Well, if that's the, the law, law that's a reasonable defence that they say, well, we can't do it this way, you have to proceed that way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's on the basis of, of an individual. Uh, and we're saying you're not dealing with an individual here, you're dealing with a collective. We're making the point that there's a way for them to bring about the change programme that you want. Uh, 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 be respectful to the workforce there and actually our view of it that's likely to be it's cost neutral there's not a problem for themselves so you know if you've t- if you've it differently and you, you say door A is actually a compact solution that I think is appropriate uh, and it may or may not give a, a resolution you decide to dispute with saying actually here's door B and you get exactly what you want out of this it's actually not going to cost you and um, it, it's, it's logical that you give serious consideration to door B and that's at the heart of of, of all, what's causing, if you like, the, the elongation to this dispute is is that I don't there either isn't the will or there isn't the, the willingness to engage in, in those uh, discussions. It takes a little bit of effort. Uh, it's about um, you know. 
people uh, being moved from different yeah. departments. But, I, but I suppose way, as well, I, I suppose as well, you've got to respect that their advice is that they have to engage in a particular uh, process in order to resolve this matter. And that has to be respected. And you, you too, as an organisation and representing the workers, have to respect that. We absolutely do, but there's nothing mutually exclusive about making sure that you uh, meet your obligations in terms of the law and engaging with your workforce in a respectful way to ensure that everybody can get on with things. There's nothing mutually exclusive about those two pieces, and that seems to be something that they're struggling to get their head around. Okay, where is the uh, Workplace Relation Commission in this? So, the work, uh, we, uh, we were... Um, asked would we attend the Workplace Relations Commission. We did. Uh, and in, in normal course of events, when you can't agree there to go on to the Labour Court, we couldn't agree there. The employer so refused to go on to the Labour Court. That exhausted that process at that stage. Now, we said uh, that uh, we're prepared to uh, meet the WRC again, um, but, but not in the same fashion that we're constrained by that process. Um, and uh, we've also said, actually, we're happy enough to meet an independent tour party if you so choose to do it that way, rather than the specific uh, machinery of the state. And so they need to come back to us about some of that detail, you know. And in the meantime, you will con- you will continue the process of um, engaging in industrial action. We will. There's a date set for the 16th. Now, obviously, it's very important to register this point. No one wants to be on strike. It's, it's a difficult thing to do. Uh, all those workers were there this morning at 5 o'clock in the freezing cold snow. The, 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 the going on strike gives rise to uh, anxiety and intrepidation. Uh, no one wants to be doing that. But because of the lack of respect shown here to the workers, people felt they, were, they had to do that, and hence the 93% in favour of industrial action. We don't want to be on strike, but we do. We have to do to defend our members' interests. What we want is, is to get into the room with them, hopefully as early as Monday morning, get around the table and be sensible and practical. Um, and I actually think um, that's, 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 on, that's on the table. OK, just let me ask you before you go, Tom, what will it take from the company for you to defer the next day of strike action on the 16th? What do you want to hear from them? I want to hear from them. Uh, that, that, that inject a sense of urgency in sitting down by ourselves. We're available very, very quickly. Uh, get into a room, uh, offer, offer practical solutions to where we go uh, and show there's a serious willingness. And in those circumstances, I think that gives us, uh, as you know, our representative structures give us a strong currency amongst our members to say, actually, uh, the company is being serious here. They're trying to engage, trying to resolve matters. We should think about the situation. So far, they haven't given us that currency. They haven't engaged in a serious fashion. And we, we, we have to report back to our membership safely the, the, the discussions that we have with the company. So if they change their approach, I think uh, all that is very, uh, very, very uh, doable. OK, Tom Fitzgerald, Regional Coordinating Officer with the Unite Trade Union. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. You can uh, drop us a line by email, or if that doesn't suit, well, you can text us on 0861800658, michael at lmfm.ie. Uh, 25 minutes to 11 on this uh, bitterly cold morning, and if you're out on the roads, do uh, exercise extreme caution, because as we were talking to um, Brian Farrell from the Road Safety Authority, things are pretty bad out there on most of the country's roads. Now, the Joint uh, Committee on the Implementation of the Good Friday Agreement met on Thursday to continue a series of engagements with architects of the Good Friday Agreement. The committee here, luck, is Deputy Fergus O'Dowd and joins us this morning. Uh, Deputy, good morning to you. Can I ask you, what's the purpose of that particular committee? Basically, it's to look at uh, how we can make sure that the Good Friday Agreement itself is fully fully applies um, 
part of Good Friday Agreement deals with north-south bodies, that is the government in the south and the government in the north working together on tourism and energy and all sorts of other issues. It's about the east-west relationship between the Irish government and the UK government and it's also about the actual assembly in the north. How can we you know, how can we relate to that if and when obviously it hasn't been working for a significant period of time. So it's basically about making sure that, you know, peace continues and that we articulate ourselves and we meet with people who have concerns about the Good Friday and about you know, us all getting on together on the island basically in terms of everybody's lives, be it business, education, health, you know, cross border cancer, stuff like that. So it's a very it's very it's a very broad uh, role we have, but it's a very, it's a very important one yeah. as well. I suppose, you know, Deputy, we're at a point now where we're reflecting on the past quarter of centuries since the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement and how things have just shifted monumentally, that we don't see the catastrophic loss of life, the murderous intent by paramilitary organisations, the bombings, the beatings, the shootings. They're a thing of the past and a thing of history, but we still have to remember them to ensure that they don't happen again. Absolutely. One of the awful developments recently is that a policeman, John Calder, was a very serious attempt on his life recently and he's uh, obviously he's very seriously injured and hopefully he'll make a good recovery. So there is there is a vacuum in the north because there is nobody in power, literally. And, and all of these shadowy people, like the people who attempted to murder him, are, are stepping into their spot now and we have to make sure, you know, obviously, you know, that, that, that we get the assembly up and running again as best we can. And one of the things I did this week, I was I was actually in Belfast on, on Saturday. I was at the Alliance Party conference. I met with lots of politicians there. And on Monday, I met with the leaders, not the leaders, but some of the leaders of the main political parties in the north, including Michelle O'Neill, uh, Stephen Ferry, Deputy Leader of the Alliance Party, Claire Hannon from the SDLP, you know, and, and members of other parties as well. So it's important that we keep in contact and keep communications going and encourage unionism mm. back into into the Assembly, basically. I, I know that you had um, Reg MP, Lord MP, uh at the committee on Thursday and I'm just reminded of so many other individuals who played a significant role in the peace process some of whom are no longer with us I think of John Hume, I think of uh, Albert Reynolds and the role which they played for many many years before we saw peace coming to the Ireland of Ireland. On reflection yourself Deputy, you know, what are your memories of, of back then and, and it, it was a very difficult birth of a process there was a lot of stops and starts It was indeed and you mentioned Albert Reynolds and certainly the Downing Street Declaration uh, which he and John Major John Major came before our committee yeah. spoke about that was absolutely critical because that gave the opportunity and uh, you know to, to, to work together to become closer together we had John Bruton the former Taoiseach you know we've had very senior civil servants and I wouldn't underestimate uh, the fantastic work that they have done. And I and think also, of Martin Manser who straddled a number of yep. administrations to ensure yep, that there was continuity. Yeah, we had Martin in as well. And I'm not forgetting my own brother, Neil. That's um, right, Neil. Uh, who, who played a, played a very United important States, part as well yeah. in America. And indeed, we had George Mitchell, uh, 
Senator George Mitchell, who was chairman of, of the, all those discussions that brought it about, he was there as well. And I think we've learned a lot. We learned that relationships improve by communication. As people say, like, you know, we had Jerry Adams as well, that people went into rooms, they weren't talking. There was, you know, obvious hostility to each other because of violence and because of other issues. But all of those were put aside and for the greater good. And that was that was why the Good Friday Agreement is actually recognised all over the world. And Reg MP yesterday was a very moderate unionist. Uh, you know, the message he was giving, and I know you asked about what my recollections were, but what he was talking was about the future. And that's what we're trying to concentrate on. What messages can we can we impart? And one of them is that to work on common ground, work on the economy, work on education, work on health. Now, Kieran Briscoe, who, who works in Drogheda, is involved with the cross-border, all-Ireland uh, cancer strategy. And if you have him on Sunday, he'll tell you all the fantastic work they're doing. So this convergence of in education, this convergence in terms of in health, uh, obviously transport, the narrow water mm-hmm. bridge, there's lots of things that everybody can agree to do if we can get back together and they don't challenge them. As Reg MP says, you know, we're not talking about the unionist position. As you said, they wouldn't even debate many of the issues, but they will talk and they will engage on, on you know, on, on the economy and jobs, on health and so on. And if we can concentrate on those, that was his message. And I, I, I think he's right. If we can do those things there and get them right, then the you know, we can we can look forward to change on our island in terms of consensual change in the future. Like the Good Friday Agreement allows for a border poll at some stage. Uh-huh. So we need to, if we can't get unionists to engage with us, uh, you know, there's no hope of persuading them to vote for. Are you are you any way confident that we'll see a restoration of um, the Stormont Assembly? I am actually, because after particularly our meetings at the weekend and the meetings I had on Monday. I'm confident that there is a way forward. I met the British ambassador as well in Leinster House to talk about issues as well during the week. Um, you know, and obviously I'm constant, constant communication with the T-shirt, the Minister of Foreign Affairs and our committee are as well. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful, but obviously I'm not, I'm not starry-eyed about it. You know, we've got to, you know, we've got to put the work together and if the you know, if we can get a package together, if the Irish, the English, the Americans, the Europeans, if we can all put a package together to look anew at how we can invest, in, you know, in, in the North and indeed cross-border projects and, you know, reassure everybody, you know, that that's, I think people know, and I think there's a poll today, if I read it right on the Irish Times, uh, they're talking about uh, a new research which shows that even unionism would prefer, you know, would prefer... You know, you know things to work rather than okay. you know just have the protocol divide us. Deputy, I just want to ask you before I go. Um, reflecting again, at what point or what what was the pivotal moment in your mind that made you say yes, this is going to work in terms of peace in the north? Well, I think when the IRA stopped killing people, you know, and that didn't last too long. We yeah. saw the the ceasefire yeah. breaking down, though. We did, we did indeed, and that was we spoke about that as well. And it was, I think it was the unionists, indeed, sorry, it was the British politicians, John Major, specifically referred to that. And he said they could have gone back to the way it had been. But he said, we have to end the violence. And if, if this is, if this, if this is, 
you know, if we can, if we can re- re-enter the, the debate and sort this issue out, if we can put it behind forever, because he doesn't want, you know, you know, the killing of people to go on and on and on as it did for 25 years. So it was a political decision, obviously, but it but it has worked, and like the guns are silent, and you know, no matter what I think of. of the IRA and all of that and I never support them I do accept and acknowledge that Sinn Féin are in our democratic institutions and and the guns are silent and I I welcome that you know even if it's uncomfortable in a political sense uh, I think the country is better off with the Good Friday Agreement but it has been you know the the executive hasn't met for a significant period of time and, and that is very serious but I think Richie Sunak uh, Ricky Sunak, the new Prime Minister, has made significant progress, and I think does. You know, I, I would, I would be hopeful. You know, and I think I, you know, the next month is going to tell a lot. Okay, but I'm personally hopeful it will work. Deputy Fergus O'Dowd, thank you for joining us this morning. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a warning has been issued over a rise in serious investment scams. The Banking and Payments Federation of Ireland's Fraud Smart says they appear to be legitimate, but are the work of fraudsters. Brochures are using the names and branding of well-known, recognised, legitimate bonds and investment schemes are being circulated by scammers and advertising online. Personal finance editor with the Irish Independent, Charlie Weston, joins us this morning. Morning, Charlie. How more sophisticated is this scam compared to others you've come across? This is a, a different level to, to the usual scam email you get, you know, when dodgy English or the, the dodgy text, dodgy English and, you know, looks fake straight away. Somebody trying to use your bank account to facilitate the transfer of money because they're part of some deposed regime. It's nothing like that at all. This is very, very high level stuff now. They're producing brochures which are very, very difficult to tell if they're not from the real company. For example, brochures from the likes of Goldman Sachs uh, promising magical returns on um, on investments. And, you know, to, to all intents and purposes, they look like a Goldman Sachs brochure or a Citibank. Like I sent one to, to, to Goldman Sachs that I saw and they took them ages to come back and say, well, actually, no, that's not from us. And they're promising great returns as well. And they're targeting people in their over 50s, people who have worked all their lives, who got through difficult periods, have now come near the retirement age, have a few bob, and you're talking a minimum of 20 grand here. Um, and and, and they're very, very sophisticated. They have somebody ringing up, and it's not somebody with broken English. It's somebody who speaks posh, English-accented English. Uh, and they can give you all the spiel. They can send you graphs. And, and they're very reassuring, and they get you the power of your money. Or even in a more sinister way, they get you to download some app which, which will bury, bury into your, borrow into your phone and take away money out of your bank account. Uh, but, um, you know, and, and sometimes it's years before people realize this. It's only when they go to try and get the return uh, to get some money drawn down that they realize, oh, I've been scammed here and I can't get the money. Uh, so it's very sophisticated. They're, they're, they're cold calling people. They're sending out brochures. They're putting brochures up on social media. And as I say, these brochures, you know, they're maybe 20 pages, they're glossy, they're high-end, they look like the real deal, but they're not. Uh, you know, the, the number you ring is not a real one. They've cloned the website uh, of the um, the company they're, they're, they're pretending to be, purporting to be, and they're directing you to a dodgy website, it, 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 you know. So it, 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 people are getting sucked in by it, but, you know... Uh, and, just and, on and that point, Charlie, from your own personal experience and having been personal letter for so long... Is it not 
kind of crazy for somebody to be responding to something that comes in on the mail or comes in on the post. I mean, caveat emptor springs to mind. Let the buyer beware over and over again. Yeah, I suppose what's happening here, Alan, is people are are a bit desperate. Like, they have money. There's a lot of money sloshing around. There's 150 billion euros in, in savings, household savings, in the banks and credit unions. They're getting no return on it. I mean, the central bank said yesterday the average return for a fixed savings product is about 0.7%. So if you get um, some sophisticated outfit, it looks like it's a genuine Goldman Sachs or Citibank or, you know, one of these big operators, big international investment joints. If, if it looks like it's, it's, they're telling you, if you put your money into this investment in, in solar energy, you, you get a return of 5.8% over, over five years. I mean, you know, people are sucked in and they're desperate and they're not asking the questions. And, uh, you know, they, they get a spiel from somebody on the phone. They sound credible. They're able to spin them yarn. And uh, and these are people who may have been very good with their money. Through I, was, I was just going to say that one would think that it's probably directed at those who would be a little bit more vulnerable, wouldn't be that au fait with money, finances, etc. But very smart people have been caught out with these scams. Exactly. It's often people who, who, who are... Not at all. You you wouldn't regard them as as, as kind of easily as vulnerable as as easily easily fooled. You know, um, like I'm just looking at this Goldman Sachs one. If you put in twenty five thousand euros up to fifty thousand, they were promising you three and a half percent a year. I mean, that's a, a great return. It is, and it's much. not beyond the realms of um, impossibility that you would get that on a return. I mean, if they were talking about seven, eight, or nine percent, say here, hang on a second. But three and three, three and a half looks well. It's possible. It, it, it particularly out. This is an investment in wind farms and uh, and solar energy. And as you know, those guys are cleaning up the moment because their their prices are, are are high because they're getting the price that's that's being got for wholesale gas. So they are making super profits. So it, it's not unreasonable to think that they, you know putting money into an investment in in solar or, or, or wind farms could, could make a good return at the moment. And you know, looking at the address, they give an address here for Goldman Sachs and Stevens Green in Dublin. It all looks it looks to fit the park, but it isn't, you know. So, but there are, there should be red flags here. Look, you're being cold called first off with an investment opportunity. You know, a, a, a regulated financial advisor in Ireland is not allowed to just ring you up, not when they don't know who you are, or not allowed to email you, or, or get in contact on social media uh, unannounced. You're also they often rush you as well. You're being pressurised to make a quick decision. And there's a, pro- a promise of a quick and profitable return. I mean, they are all warning signs. So you need to stop. Take your time. I mean, look, at I'm old-fashioned, Alan. I, I don't want to part with a lot of money unless I know who I'm talking to. I'd wear to see the person in, in, in yeah. the flesh. Want to see the white you know. of the rides, Charlie. Exactly. You're talking about a lot of money here. You know, I mean, why, why would you take a risk? So what people do, they're desperate. They get And what's important as well, the banks do have a role to play in this, in that in one particular inc- instance, uh, which was highlighted in the article, where an individual was about to lose a considerable amount of money, but it was flagged by the bank to him and it was subsequently stopped. That's right, Alan. Yeah, um, you know, the, the, the bank spotted a, a transfer uh, was about to be made for €60,000. Now, they thought that was a lot of money. Obviously, that, that started sending, you know, sounding off alarm bells in the bank. And they got on to the person and said, no, are you sure this is genuine? What's going on here? And this person had, had a lump sum from their pension that they wanted to put into an investment because they thought they're not getting enough from their pension. Here's a, a final boost at the end of the, the working days. But the bank said, no, they looked at it and said, no, this is not genuine. Don't do that. So it was stopped in its tracks. But that's what we know about. Mm-hmm. How many of these are happening that we don't know about, Alan? Because um, 
who's going to go into the pub and say, oh, I've just been scammed out of 20 grand. Yeah. This guy sounded genuine. I thought it was a great idea. I put 20 grand into it. Nobody's going to admit that. So this is happening to, uh, to a larger extent than we can work out because people won't report it. We do know that 30 million euros was uh, siphoned out of um, in investment scams in the last three years, but it could be much higher. Okay. I think it is higher. Charlie, I'm, r- I'm running out of time on this, but I just want to touch on one particular um, subject with you, and that is interest rate increases from the ECB, the impact they are having, particularly on individuals with tracker mortgages. That is a time bomb ready to explode, would you consider? It is. I mean, those people are being hit with, with merciless increases. I mean, we've had five so far. There's another one on uh, just before Paddy's Day on Thursday, another increase in the European Central Bank rate. If you're on a tracker, there's, there's no way out of, out of it. It's part of the deal that you automatically get passed on any increase or decrease that the European Central Bank announces. So those people are being slaughtered. They really need to get a, a, a financial advisor to look at the situation. In some cases, but not all, it might be worth ditching the tracker and seeing if you could lock into a fixed rate now, particularly if you're near the end of the mortgage or, or you're coming in for, you know, but it'll depend on your circumstances, you know, uh, but um, the, the old trackers, the maths has changed on those. The, yeah. the, the old, old cliche that I invented, you'd be crackers to, to give up your trackers. That's gone now. That doesn't work anymore. It, 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 the maths has changed. And have we seen, you know, the days of low interest rates gone, that they're going to sit somewhere about maybe two, three, three and a half percent going forward? It looks like that, Alan, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we, we got it good for a long time. Those of us on a tracker had 11 years of, of zero, you know, zero percent. Um, those days are gone. It looks like we're, we're, you know, what they call normal interest rates is about three to four percent. Uh, they could keep, could, could keep going up for a while and it could be into next year before they settle down and maybe come back a bit. But, uh, yeah, unfortunately, we're into higher interest rate uh, situations. And uh, just finally, when do you expect that to feed into the Irish economy? Because those people on tracker mortgage, and it's a considerable number of people, Charlie, will be feeling the pinch, I would imagine, uh, the second quarter of this year. That presumably then will feed into to the economy in some shape or form. I think that's a reasonable assumption. I think, yes, that those people will be put to the pin in our collar, particularly if they're with a vulture fund who whose interest rates were very high before the European Central Bank started increasing rates anyway. Uh, and those people are being hit with ridiculous increases. I mean, I'm getting emails from people saying that they're, they're already being told their interest rate is going to 9.25. 9.25, it's decades since we had rates like yeah. that. There's no way those people won't be impacted and that those people won't get into financial difficulty, I'm afraid. Charlie Weston, the personal finance editor with the Irish Independent, talking to me uh, a short time ago. Nearly at the end of the programme, just a couple of comments before we let you go. Tommy couldn't get over the number of people belting along the roads this morning, despite the terrible road conditions. They were acting like it was normal driving conditions. It was frightening to watch. Thankfully, many of the other drivers, like him, were mindful of their driving. But seeing those fools taking such a stupid chance and putting other motorists under pressure made his blood boil. The new curriculum, Apollo says, it's about time we had a new curriculum in schools and it's great to see foreign language given as an option. Our kids need to be properly prepared for life. Even from an earlier age in this new curriculum definitely seems to be a step in the right direction. Unfortunately, we've run out of time for today, for the rest of the week. Thank you for listening uh, over the past week. Uh, Michael Reed's back on Monday, same time for the Michael Reed Show. Till the next time, for myself, Alan Cantwell, good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 